Well, friends, if you want to grab your Bible with me and turn to the Gospel of John, we're going to pick it up where we left off last week. As is our practice, we take a book of the Bible, we kind of work through it uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book to see what God is saying to us, try to make sense of what he's saying and with his help to apply it to our lives. If you're looking at the black Bible in the chair in front of you, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab that, that, that Bible, open it up with us. John 10 is found on page 896, 896. And if you do not own a Bible that you can read, that Bible in the chair in front of you or underneath of you is our gift to you. Uh, no one will tackle you if they see you walking out of this church with a church Bible. We want you to take it if you'll read it. So uh, keep that in mind. Let me pray and let's ask God for his help as we consider his word. Lord, we know from Isaiah 55 that you uh, will always accomplish your purpose as your word goes out, that your word will not fall to the ground without accomplishing its good purpose. We pray, Lord, that as we hear your voice today, that we would not harden our hearts. We pray, Father, that you would help us to hear and to trust and to follow. Help us to understand and with an understanding that comes from the Spirit of God turning the lights on so that we can see. Help us, Lord, even as the blind man saw you and worshiped, help us to see you and worship together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why did God create the universe? God did not create the universe. He did not create the universe because he was lonely. He did not create the universe because he was bored. You have to understand that. For all eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have loved, enjoyed, and delighted in each other. We worship one God, but within that one God is three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they have known always in that Godhead a, a rich, satisfying love. Each person of the Godhead oriented not on self, but the other. So if we could step into the fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you would find infinite joy. You would experience everything that your heart has always longed for, everything that your heart has been created to know. You would find that satisfaction in life in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You would find heaven. In that sense, God did not create to get joy. God created to give joy, to give infinite joy. And we know from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve knew that joy. They knew that life. That is, until they rebelled against God and said, we got it from here. We can do it ourselves. And as God had warned them previously, our rejecting his rule, our rebelling against him, results in death, slavery to sin, and a spiritual blindness. A spiritual blindness that ever since Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, all of humanity from, their, from, from their, the, the moment they come into this world, they are left, humanity is left groping in the dark, trying to find their way back to the life that God created them for. God put eternity in our hearts and we're left 
by ourselves, groping through the dark, trying to find the joy in the life that we were made for. Friend, where are you looking for life? We're all looking somewhere. For some, it's in their kids. They want to have a really obedient, lovely, kind of Martha Stewart, picturesque, Instagram-worthy family. For some, it's their marriage or the hope of a marriage. Or others, it's in having a spouse that appreciates and respects and loves them. Others look for life in success at work or gaining a big bank account or the respect of their colleagues or the praise of their friends and fellow students. Other people's rest, uh, other people's hope rests in a political solution. And they put their hopes in having the right politician in office, the right policies in place. Still others look for life and joy in having a comfortable life, full of ease and a problem-free future. Where is your heart looking for life? What does your heart trust in for that joy? Who do you trust to lead you so that you can experience that life and joy? John 10, amidst all the noise and options that we have in this world, John 10 answers that question for us. And John 10 is going to show us where we must look to know and find that joy in life. And to do that, John 10 is going to employ this shepherding imagery, similar to what we heard read from Ezekiel 34. Now, in the Old Testament, a shepherd was not just a farmer. A shepherd was a leader. So when you read about Moses or David, they were not just Uh, shepherds in the field that was kind of preparation for their role as a leader leading God's people to the promised land. So how can we find the life that we were made for? Uh, John 10 is going to answer it in two different points. Point number one, if you're a note taker, is this. Follow the voice of the good shepherd. How can you find life and joy? Number one, follow the voice of the good shepherd. And we're going to see that in verses 1 through 18 of our text this morning. So let's look together at God's word, starting in John 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls them his own by name and leads them out. When he has brought out his, all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, let me pause there, because in, in order to understand John 10, you have, this, you have to understand that John 9 and 10 actually go together. So the chapter divisions are helpful for us as readers today, but they were actually added probably in the 15th or 16th century. They're not inspired. And so I think we could take out the chapter division between 9 and 10 and be just fine. They actually belong together. In chapter 9, if you remember from last week, Jesus came and gave physical sight to a man who was born blind. It was an amazing miracle that attested to who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. But not only did he give the blind man physical sight, by the end of chapter 9, Jesus gave him spiritual sight. The blind man, in the end, not only sees physically, but he sees Jesus for who he is, and he bows down and he worships Jesus. 
the right response. In contrast, the Pharisees who saw the same miracle did not fall down and worship him. They instead refused to acknowledge the obvious, undeniable truth that the miracle pointed to and showed about who Jesus is. And so chapter 9 ends with Jesus pointing out that because of their unbelief, your guilt remains. That's the last verse in chapter 9, verse 41. The next verse in chapter 10, verse 1, then turns and then makes the point that the Pharisees that he was just talking about at the end of chapter 9, they are the thief and the robber who climbed into the sheepfold by climbing over the fence. These uh, false shepherds want to get rid of, they want to extinguish the light of the world, Jesus in order to protect their glory and their position that they gain from being leaders in Israel. And so these these thieves and robbers, they pose, they pretend to be shepherds who actually care for the sheep, but underneath their shepherding outfit, they're actually thieves and robbers who climbed in to swindle the sheep, to fleece them, to take advantage of them for selfish reasons, for their own glory. So in chapter 9, we saw the Pharisees actually resorted to threats and intimidation in order to get people to say that the good things that Jesus did, like healing a man that was born blind, they used threats and intimidation to get them to say that those good things were bad things and sinful things. And the reason that they resort to intimidation and threats is because false shepherds are suppressing the truth. They don't want to be exposed as frauds. They have to sneak into the sheepfold, not through the front gate, but by climbing over the fence because they're frauds. In contrast, the true shepherd, the good shepherd, does not sneak around. He does not have to climb over in the wall so no one sees him. He goes through the front gate, and the gatekeeper opens the door for him because the gatekeeper recognizes that's the true shepherd. Now, a sheepfold for you city folk, which is most of us, uh, is a sheep pen. So we're meant to imagine in our mind four kind of uh, possibly rock walls that provide protection for a flock of sheep. And in the ancient days, a a sheep pen, a sheep fold, often housed more than one flock. There was multiple shepherds, multiple sheep folds, or multiple flocks that would come in at night and get protection in that sheep fold. But what's cool, and you can actually go online and see videos of shepherds doing this, Uh, in order to separate one flock from the other in the sheep pen, all the shepherd has to do is call his sheep. And what's amazing is you'll see that the, the, the flocks separate. Why? Because the, the sheep that belong to that shepherd, they recognize his voice and they go with him. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse four. The sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. So what's important for us is to see that this, this, is, this is actually explaining what we saw back in chapter nine. This is why some people, like the blind man made to see, would actually see Jesus' miracle and worship. Why? Because he was a sheep, and he heard the voice of a shepherd, and he went. And it also explains why other people, like the Jews, who could see the same miracle and not worship but hate him. Why? Because they weren't his sheep. Not yet. 
Friends, this is the litmus test. If a person is a sheep who belongs to the good shepherd, they will hear the voice of the good shepherd. And they won't just say, "Mm, that's nice. They won't just say, amen. They will follow the voice. They will obey the voice of the shepherd. They will not follow the voice of a stranger. They will follow the voice of the good shepherd, even if following the voice of the good shepherd means that you're kicked out of the synagogue. Friends, members of First Baptist, if you have heard God's voice at some point in your life in the pages of Scripture, if you've heard the voice of the good shepherd calling you and you turned from your sin and you followed Jesus, give praise to God. It's not a reason for you to boast because you were somehow more intelligent or more godly or more special. It's a reason to give thanks. It's a reason to praise God for his glorious grace. That's the only explanation why any of us would respond to the voice of the shepherd. Pray, pray that this humble gratitude would, 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 would mark us as a church more and more because we recognize that it's God's grace that we hear his voice and respond. Pray that that would mark us as a church more and more. Verse six, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Don't miss why Jesus came, friends. He came to give you life. He came to give these people who were rejecting him life. He came to give anyone who would hear him life. And not stingy life, but fullness of life, abundant life, the life that we were made for. That's why he came. Jesus has been talking in figures of speech, and because they don't understand what he's saying, he actually circles back from the figure of speech that he gave in verses one through five about the shepherd and the sheep, and then he expands on two different ideas. The door, he's going to expand on the door in verses seven through 10, and then he's going to expand on the good shepherd in verses 11 through 18. So we're going to look first of all at the door in verses seven through 10. Two times in verses seven through 10, Jesus makes it very clear, I am the door. That's kind of strange. What's he mean by that? What's a door do? A door gives you access. If you're outside, you go through the door to get inside. It gives you access, access to safety, access to resources. So if you're standing outside in Alaska in December in 40 40 below zero weather, and you're outside and you see a door, you want to go through that door to have access to warm, warmth, right? Or else you're going to die. In verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Saved from what? Not 40 below you know, sub temperatures, 
Jesus is the door that saves us from an eternal danger. The greatest threat that any of us face in our lives. The righteous wrath of God that is aimed at your sin and mine. Jesus is the door that saves us from that righteous wrath. But being saved, and you gotta take note of this, being saved is more than just getting access to safety. That's true, but it's more. Jesus goes on to say that the person will enter by him and will go in for safety and out and find pasture. So it's not just coming in for safety, it's also coming out through the door for pasture. The pasture represents provision for the journey. The shepherd will take the sheep out to the pasture and there's provision, there's restoration, there's strength, there's food, there's water, there's safety, there's rest. In other words, pasture is another way of Jesus saying what he says in verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Friends, the life that we were created for is not found outside of God. The world does not believe that, but that's what this text is saying. The life we were created for is not found outside of God. Outside of God, according to the Bible, is darkness, condemnation, hopelessness, and death. And we enter into this world outside of God, in darkness, in death, in condemnation, in hopelessness. And, and, and here's the good news. We look up in that, plot, that, that, that darkness and we see a door. Friends, because of sin, we begin outside, but with eternity written in our hearts, we are hardwired to look for life. Christians are sheep. <laughs> and we need to go through that door that Jesus provides us. Now, sometimes there'll be some leaders that are called thieves and robbers, according to this text. They're gonna climb over the wall. They're gonna pretend to be shepherds. Here's how you can identify a thief and a robber. They offer a way to life and safety and joy other than through Jesus. Pretty simple. The thief and the, the, thief and the robber says, here's the path to life. Here's the path to freedom. Here's the path to joy and they direct you away from Jesus. They direct you away from what he has said in his word. That's a thief, that's a robber. They're not there for your good, they're there to fleece you, to take advantage of you, to use you for their own glory and good. Church, don't listen to the thief and the robber who directs you away from Jesus. They offer ways of life and safety through morality, through politics, through knowledge, through money, through power, through pleasure, through the praise of man. But notice, though, that Jesus does not say, I am a door, one path among many that will get you where you want to go. He says, I am the door. There's only one door. He and he alone is the door that brings us out of darkness into light, out of condemnation into his mercy, out of hopelessness into hope, out of death into the life. John 14, 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Why? Because he is the door. That's an exclusive claim. That means every other path is a dead end. Every other world religion is a dead end. Every other solution this world offers us is a dead end. So 
What about Jesus sets him apart as the only solution, the only door? What does Jesus do that makes him unique, that he alone is able to save? Well, look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not the shepherd is not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Friends, these verses are glorious. I pray that God gives us eyes to see what he's saying here. They're glorious, but they're also theologically like, woo, that's heavy, right? So we gotta, we gotta work through what he's saying. Jesus is the door that people must enter into in order to be saved. He's, he said that in seven through 10. He's also the good shepherd. The door and the good shepherd go together. God does not open the door for sinners and say, ah, eh, don't worry about your sin. We'll just sweep it under the carpet. Wink, wink, no big deal. He doesn't do that. He cannot do that. He will not do that. If God would do that, if he would let you, sinners like you and me in the door without dealing with sin, he would not be a good shepherd. He would be an unjust and unrighteous shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. The preposition for there means in the place of, in substitution of. He's pointing to the substitutionary atonement there. Jesus rescues sinners from the mortal danger that they are all in, that we are all in, by dying for the sheep. And on the cross, taking the punishment that our sins deserve as our substitute. So you can have a hired hand kind of watching the sheep. When the hired hand sees the danger, peace out, I'm done. <laughs> Why? Because the sheep aren't his. If his life is threatened, he's gone. I'm, I didn't, I'm not getting paid for this. But Jesus is no hired hand. He is the good shepherd. He laid down his life to purchase the sheep. They are his own. And he loves the sheep. Notice in the text how his love is personal. You see that in verse three? He calls his own sheep, how? By name. You know, you know, you know when you meet somebody and you forget their name, and you're kind of like, hey you, hey guy, dude. And it's pretty obvious, I don't know your name. Jesus is not that guy. When Jesus calls his sheep, he's not saying, hey, you, come here. He says, hey, Tony. Hey, Amy. 
Hey, Blake. Hey, Jackie. Hey, Josh. He calls you by name. He's a personal shepherd. He, he knows exactly what's going on in your life. He does not forget your name. His love for you is unique and personal. But not only is his love personal, his love is also deep. Now, this is where it gets mind-blowing. Verse 14. Look again at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. This is amazing. (laughs) The shepherd loves and knows his sheep. How? Verse 15. Just as... The Father knows and loves Jesus. Well, how does the Father know and love Jesus? Perfectly, without fail, infinitely, unfailingly. We can look at the way that the Father loves the Son and be like, oh, it's amazing. I wish that, that, that God loved me like that. I wish he knew me like that. And you know what Jesus says? He does! Jesus, the good shepherd, knows you by name. And he looks at you and says, I love you just as the Father knows and loves me. Come on! Do you see that, church? Do you believe that? Don't just gloss over that. Take some time to pray about this afternoon. Let that sink in. It's it's ridiculously amazing. I can't find words. And then to show his love, how does God show his love? He, he lays down his life for us. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, undeserving, he died for us. That's how you can know with certainty that he loves you as he says he does in verses 14 and 15. Friends, I pray that if you're, if you're here this morning, if you're listening online and you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I pray that you are hearing right now the voice of Jesus calling you to be his sheep. He's inviting you. He's calling you to give you life. I pray that you hear. And I pray that you would respond. Friends, left to ourselves, your sin and mine means that we are outside of God in mortal danger of God's righteous judgment. We cannot get inside by our good works. There's only one door, and that door, that according to this text, is Jesus. Jesus gives us access. He is the one who helps us to be reconciled to God because he alone laid down his life for sinners like me and like you. And because he did that, he's now calling you to himself. Come and have life. There's no other way. Come and have life through me. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Friends, if you hear his voice right now, do not harden your hearts. Don't put it off until tomorrow. Turn from your sin. Right now, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. He promises you in verse 9, you will be saved. You will come out and go in and have pasture. You will have the life that he promises in verse 10. Trust in him. God's love is amazing, is it not? First Baptist, I, I pray that when we hear about God's extravagant, scandalous love for us, that we don't doubt it. Because our hearts often doubt God's love for us, right? 
we accept the fact that Jesus died for us, okay, but then we kind of slip into this way of thinking about God where he, yeah, he died for me, but he, he's just kind of putting up with me. I mean, I, I know something about my sinful heart, so there's no way he loves me like this. There's no way. And so we kind of assume wrongfully that he just kind of reluctantly loves us. Do you think that? You ever tended to think that? If so, then let the word of God, the word of Jesus in this text, correct your wrong thinking. Jesus will not let you think that way. Verse 17, Jesus says, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Notice what he's saying about the father. Jesus did not gain God's love because he was going to the cross. We know in chapter 17, verse 24, that God the father loved God the son before the foundation of the world. So it's not like he didn't have God's love and then he gained it. He always had it. I think what he's saying in verse 17 is that when God the Father sees the Son's willingness to submit and to obey and go to the cross for our salvation, the Father loves that. The Father is not begrudging. The Father sees the willingness of the Son to make that sacrifice and he's like, yes, look at my Son. This is awesome. I love you. Okay, so maybe we can accept the fact that in light of verse 17, that that's the Father's heart toward us, that he, that he delights to love us as he does. But surely, when you think about Jesus going to the cross, surely he was reluctant. Surely somebody's in the back room twisting Jesus' arm to go reluctantly to put up with sinners like us. Is that true? Verse 18 corrects that wrong thinking. Jesus says, no one takes it from me. No one twists my arm. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. You see that? He is not reluctant to love you. He is free to love you. And part of the way that we see the glory of his love is to recognize that he is free to love you and he loves you because he chooses to love you. Not because you and I are deserving of his love, but because he freely chooses to love us in spite of our sin. No one forces God to love us as he does. God did not call any of us because we are special, more special than others. He did not call us because we are less sinful than others. God is pleased to lay down his life for us. Jesus is pleased to lay down his life for us because that's who he is. It just bubbles out of his heart. You, you peel back the, you peel back the, 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 the you know, you, you somehow open up and look at what the heart of God is. That's, that's who he is. He delights to do this. At the end of the day, that any of us are his sheep is due to God's unconditional election. It's due to his amazing grace in our lives. There's nothing that we can boast about. It's completely by God's grace. Knowing that, God's grace then and his love for us, this extravagant love, that should produce in us the greatest humility and gratitude that is possible. But as one writer notes, because we are sinners still, it has proven often in history that the church has become ingrown and indifferent to the world. Her chosen standing as God's chosen people have, has been wickedly woven into the fabric of ethnocentrism, racism, and nationalism. The church has become comfortable with its own kind, this fold. In light of that... 
That's why I think Jesus issues the warning and the encouragement that he does in verse 16. Look at verse 16 again. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so they will be one flock, one shepherd. You, you hear the echo of Ezekiel 34, when God says, I will be the shepherd. These bad shepherds didn't do their job, I'll be the shepherd to go after and I'm going to gather the scattered people of God into one place. There'll be one flock under one shepherd. So the fold, the sheep, the sheep in verses 1 through 5, I think he, he has, in, in, in a lot of the fact that we're coming off chapter 9, the sheep in, in verses 1 through 5 are the Jewish people. That's the sheep flock that he's talking about, right? Here in verse 16, the sheep that are not of this fold, the Jewish fold, than are the Gentile people, the non-Jewish people. Friends, look around the room. We're all Gentile Christians, I think, most of us, right? The fact that you and I are here as sheep is evidence that Jesus has fulfilled and is fulfilling his promise in verse 16. He's doing what he said he would do, and he's got more work to do. So what you see in verse 16 are Jews and Gentiles, two Ethnic groups, different ethnic groups coming together to be one flock to God's glory. So Jesus' words in verse 16 is a call for us to look outward. Not just think about us, ingrown, just, just First Baptist. This is a call for us to look outward on a global level. This is, why we, this is why we send and we pray and we go to other nations that don't yet have the gospel. Because Jesus has sheep that, are, that he's going he's gonna to bring into his fold. And how does he do that? He sends preachers and missionaries and Christians like us to those nations. Read, read Romans 10. How can they hear unless no one goes? Well, we got to go. That's why we go. And we know that that work is not in vain because Jesus promises, i got sheep there. I'm going to bring them in. How? Through you. So go. So pray. So send. That's why we do that. But it's not just that he, this is not just a call for us to look outward on a global level. It's also a call for us to look outward on a micro or an individual level. This past Wednesday, we, we had a church-wide prayer meeting, and it was very encouraging. And at one point, uh, Phil Jensen was praying, and he asked God to grow us in unity, not in uniformity. And I listened to him, and I said, amen, amen. That's a good prayer. Why do I say amen to Phil's prayer? Because our being one flock, as Jesus says in verse 16, is not based on uniformity of thinking on politics or policies or in our opinions about a current event. What makes us one flock is Jesus. Verse 16 I, that's Jesus speaking, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. What happens when the sheep listen and follow to the voice of the shepherd? So there will be one flock, one shepherd. It's the, it's the sheep listening to the shepherd's voice in the word of God and then following the word of God that makes us one flock under one shepherd. It's the basis of our unity. Do you hear that? It's not maybe, or I hope that will happen. It's, it's, it's already done. It's now us to live up to what God has already accomplished. 
God has made us one new man, according to Ephesians 2. Now we need to live like it. It's pretty simple, really. But don't mishear me. It's simple, but it's difficult. It's glorious, but it's hard. And I think we can all attest to that. To listen to the voice of the shepherd means to follow. Not just to hear it and say, I I cognitively hear it. It's to listen means to follow and to obey what God demands of us in his word without exception. We can't just pick parts of the Bible that we like and that are easy for us and then ignore other parts. We read it from cover to cover, verse to verse, and as God speaks to us through his word, we listen, we follow, we obey. An example? I'll give you one. Three chapters later in John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Okay, that's pretty straightforward, right? But that's not, he's not done yet. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Think for a moment how Christ has loved you. Have you loved those who disagree with you that way? Are you loving people who are difficult to love as Christ has loved you? Now it's hard, isn't it? How are we going to do this? Not by pretending it's easy. Not by pushing these verses away. How are we going to do this? With the help of the shepherd. Jesus is the door. We walk in. But we don't just walk into the door and then he's like, okay, you walked in, you're on your own now. You walk into the door who is Jesus, but then when you walk through the door, you find the good shepherd. And he says, not only am I the one who gives you access to the beginning of this relationship, I'm the one who's going to help you carry out everything that I called you to do. He's the good shepherd who strengthens us and guides us and corrects us and helps us. Jesus said in verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. You know why it's important? Jesus, yes, he died for our sin, but he rose again on the third day so that we know that we have a shepherd who's alive. And it's not just for show. He's alive so that he can walk with you right now and help you do right now what he commands to you to do, which seems impossible. But with his help and his Holy Spirit and his people, he, we're able to do that. We're no longer slaves to sin. Now, I think, I just want to say one more thing about this. Like, how do, we, how do we live together as one flock under one shepherd? Well, again, it's pretty simple. He says it's by us listening to the voice of the shepherd and following, and we help each other do that. But another unique way that Jesus cultivates unity in the church is through deacons. You can read Acts 6 this afternoon. In the, in the, first, six verse, in the first seven verses of Acts 6, it, you see a very tense conflict between two ethnic groups in the early church regarding food distribution to the widows. You have the, the Grecian widows and the, and the Hebrew widows, two ethnic groups who are in conflict. And the apostles recognize this is a really important issue, not just so that they, the widows get their food, it's a really important issue because the unity that Christ died to achieve was at risk. This is a serious issue. 
So what do they do? Well, in Acts 6, the church comes together under the leadership of the apostles, and the church calls seven deacons, servants, who will not only distribute the food, but who will help the widows in their conflict work through their differences. These deacons are not just called to distribute food, they're they're called to bring unity where there is conflict within the church. That's why they have these qualifications in Acts 6. I am so thankful for every one of the deacons here at First Baptist Church of Marlboro. We should praise God for them, we should pray for them, we should encourage them, we should help them. Praise God for those who are serving in those roles. Mike Whitaker, I wanna pick on you for just a minute because we installed you this morning though. Let me remind you, brother, even as we said in these vows this morning, that one of your jobs, one of the purposes that God has called you as one of the deacons to serve in this church is to promote and encourage and cultivate unity in this church. That's what deacons do. They, they, they serve the physical needs of the church so that we can focus on the ministry, the word and the prayer, and then you help in, in, not only in doing that, but also in helping work, cultivate unity in the church. So look for ways, as you serve as a deacon of benevolence, look, look for ways that you can uh, serve that way and, and promote unity. Pray that God would use you in that role to promote unity, to cultivate unity, and to strengthen unity in our church, that we would grow as one flock under one shepherd. Friends, if we were to find life, the life that we were made for, that was lost because of sin, we must, first of all, follow the voice of the good shepherd. (laughs) But as we follow this good shepherd to the promised land, there's some hurdles, there's some traps, there's some hardships along the way, right? Look at where you're at now, look at the promised land of heaven. Is there some difficulties along the way, church? Yeah. So one of the natural questions is, okay, I walked through the door, I got the good shepherd, but how am I gonna make it to the end? Look what's going on in this world. I don't, how can we have assurance that we're going to make it to the end? Point number two, remember your shepherd is God. You want assurance you're gonna make it to the end? Remember your shepherd is God. That's verses uh, 19 through 42. We're gonna be a little more brief in this last point, so let's, let's get to the text. Verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At the time of the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of the Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So probably a couple months have passed since the Feast of Booze where the Feast of Dedication which is known as today as Hanukkah. So it's probably sometime in December. They're celebrating God's deliverance. This group of people, the group of Jews circle Jesus. You ain't going anywhere. (laughs) It's a very suspenseful moment. 
Tell us plainly. You've been talking in figures of speech about sheep and shepherds and all this stuff. Tell us plainly whether or not you're the Christ. They were looking, when they, when they think of the Christ, they're thinking of this political Messiah who would come in and wipe out Rome and usher in the kingdom of God and, 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 and bring political renewal. But notice Jesus' response in verse 25. I told you. Tell us plainly. Verse 25, I, I told you. And you do not believe. All through John's gospel, he has been crystal clear about who he is. He's the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. He's the door. He's the good shepherd. He's the one with the authority not only to lay down his life, but to take it up again. He's been very clear about who he is. But they don't like the figures of speech he's using. They want a plain answer. And so Jesus, in verse 27, gives them another answer. But he gives them far more than they bargained for in just the simple question, are you the Christ? He's saying yes, but he's going to give them far more than that. Notice in verse 28, Jesus makes the point that the sheep are in his hand. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then in verse 29, the sheep are in the Father's hand. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So which is it, Jesus? Is it, are the sheep in Jesus' hand or are they in the Father's hand? You know what the answer is? Yes. And in verse 30, he makes that explicit. I and the Father are one. They got far more than they bargained for, are you the Christ? He says, I am the Christ, but I'm a lot more than that. You need to understand that I'm a lot more than that. Why does he let us know that he and the Father are one? It's not just that you can get an A on the theology exam tomorrow. It has practical implications. He wants you and I, as his sheep, to have assurance. If you're a Christian, there may be times where you know the pull of temptation and it feels unstoppable. Maybe you've sinned and you've ran your life into the ditch like a sheep who gets stuck in the ditch. As you struggle to follow God, there may be times when as his sheep you feel weary, you feel discouraged, you feel riddled with doubt. But friends, even if you are in the valley of the shadow of death, you can be confident this morning. You can be certain that you will make it to the end. And we know this not, not just because I tell you that. We know that because Jesus said that. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. When will Jesus let his sheep perish? Never. <laughs> Who can snatch you out of his hand? No one, unless you're stronger than Jesus. Good luck with that one. And then, he, and then if that's not enough, he goes even further. But what if there's something really big that we couldn't expect, that we couldn't plan for, that we didn't see coming? Okay, he gives you more assurance in verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is why the Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane wrote, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Brothers and sisters, our security is not based upon our performance, how well you've done today or how poorly you failed today. Our assurance is not based on how we feel. Our feelings go up and down. Our security is based upon Jesus and his 
unbreakable grip on his sheep. Our confidence, our assurance is based upon the unbreakable grip of God our Father, who he promises no one will snatch you from his hand. So for every look that you take upon yourself that that feeds your doubt and fear, take 10 looks to Jesus. That's where your assurance rests. That's where your assurance lies. Well, how do they respond to this good news? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, which, for which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it is not written, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, And they said to him, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. In telling the truth that Jesus is from God, that he's from the Father, and that he is one with the Father, the Jews pick up stones to kill Jesus for the charge of blasphemy. In verses 34 through 36, Jesus does some biblical jujitsu. He lowers, and he does it to kind of lower the temperature in the room to buy himself some time. And what he's doing is he's pointing back to Psalm 82, verse 6, which actually you you see God in his unbreakable word referring, he used the word God, lowercase g-o-d, to refer to some other being less than himself. And so what Jesus is saying is, okay, if God does that in Scripture, is it not possible that he's not blaspheming by calling himself the Son of God? Now, Jesus' point is true, it's biblical, but it's not a slam dunk argument that kind of settles the issue. Jesus, I think, does it to buy some time. He's not afraid about dying. He's not afraid of them stoning him. But remember what he says about himself in verse 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So when it's his time, he'll say it's time. They're picking up the stone and saying it's time. He's like, it ain't time yet. He's in charge even when they're about to kill him. So why does he buy more time? Why, why does he kind of delay it? Well, in verse 37 to 38, he, he gives them one more invitation to life. Verse 37, if I am not doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. In other words, he says, if you don't believe my words about what I'm saying about myself, then at least look at my works, look at my signs, look at my miracles, and believe what they are saying about me. Now, the fact that he's inviting these people to have life is remarkable. Don't forget what's in their hand stones to kill him and their bloodthirsty threats and their stones and they're ready to kill him Jesus is more concerned about their well-being than his own life and he's still inviting them to have life in him he's still saying believe okay you don't believe my words but believe my works do you see God's mercy in this do you see the heart of the good shepherd 
It's not just that God was like this back then in Jesus' day. This is who God is today for his people right now. Jesus performed many miracles during his earthly ministry to show that he is the Christ, the Son of God. He turned water into wine. He healed a paralytic. He fed 5,000 people from one lunchbox. He walked on water. He made a blind man to see. Amazing works that attested to who he was. And yet there was a greater work that was still to come that his disciples did not yet see. He told them it was coming, but they didn't see it yet. His resurrection. Not only did Jesus say that he had the authority to lay down his life, he also said that he had the authority to take up his life again in verse 18. And that's exactly what he did. The linchpin of Christianity is the physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If he is still in the tomb, we are wasting our time. But if his tomb is empty, and it is, then we can be certain that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of God. We can be certain that our shepherd is not just some Joe Schmo. We can be certain today that our shepherd is God himself, risen from the dead. What does that mean for us now? Psalm 23 verse one makes it clear. The Lord is my shepherd, so what? I shall not want. David is saying, if God is your shepherd, he will provide for you all that you need so that you will not want. If you don't have it, you don't need it. If you need it, you'll have it. I shall not want. And then Psalm 23 verse four goes on to say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. God not only provides for us, he also protects us. And keeps us. And then Psalm 23 verse 6 ends this way. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I love that verse. Because we, we, we don't know what the details of, about tomorrow. We don't know what, the, what tomorrow holds for us. We don't know the details about tomorrow. But we know how tomorrow ends. When tomorrow is done... Those who have God as their shepherd will look back, and what will they see? Goodness and mercy following them. When you look ahead, what is tomorrow? I don't know, but I can promise you this. If God is your shepherd, tomorrow when you get done with the day, you'll look back and you will see goodness and mercy. How do I know that? Because he promises that for us. There will be valleys of shadows of death. There will be hard times. There will be enemies. But if you trust him, If you follow him, you'll look back and you'll see goodness and mercy all the days of your life. We can be certain that our shepherd will get us home and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever because our shepherd is God and our shepherd is greater than all. Let's pray.